You're listening to the Pop Tart Podcast. Girl down. You already know. Why I ended up being a teenage delinquent, I don't really know. But I had like a half-empty Poland spring bottle in my hand and I threw it. And it hit one of the cops in the back and I was like, fuck. I've never been on speed before, but I feel like I know what it would be like now. The human experience is absurd. It's absurd because... You've got to hold on to your sanity like it's a billionaire with a nine-inch dick. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Pop-Tarts! Me, 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 me! I'm Emily Rems. I'm Callie Watts. We're both editors of Bust Magazine in New York City. We love talking to each other about pop culture. We love talking to you about pop culture. And today's guest is a legendary New York designer, an entrepreneur, a cast member on one of the biggest reality shows on the planet, and now she's an author as well. Leah McSweeney founded the women's streetwear line Married to the Mob in 2004, and she has been starring on Bravo's hit series, The Real Housewives of New York City, since 2020, where she's been introducing a much-needed dose of relatability into a show that has been criticized for becoming increasingly out of touch with the city it claims to represent. On April 5th, Leah will be releasing her new memoir, Chaos Theory, Finding Meaning in the Madness, One Bad Decision at a Time. I cannot wait to talk to her all about it. Welcome, Leah McSweeney, to our show. Yay! That was such an amazing intro. I just, like, need to hear that every morning, like, before (laughs) I start my day, and I'm going to feel great. (laughs) Thank you. It's all true. Every word of it. (laughs) I would like... If we can, to start at the beginning, you are one of those rare people who was actually born in New York City, and by the time you were 22 in 2004, you had already launched what would become a major streetwear brand, Married to the Mob. What was it about your early life that led you to becoming an entrepreneur so young? You know what? I think that I was fearless. Like, I have, and and, and this is not a good thing or a bad thing, like, I'm lucky that like, and obviously if you read the book, I talk all about my teenage delinquency and drug use and et cetera, et cetera. But I was fearless to a point where it was dangerous, but it also ended up being good for me starting the brand. (laughs) Now I'm like a worried mess all the time. But (laughs) back then, (laughs) back then, you know, I think it was like fearlessness and just like, I did. I wasn't scared to fail because I fell so many times on my face, like as a teenager, like fucking things up, like my life up that I was like, whatever, if I fuck this up, I fuck this up. I've been fucking things up my whole life. So it just worked out. (laughs) It worked out. (laughs) Amazing. You know, part of that story um, that I find so interesting Well, actually, a couple of things. One thing that I latched on right away while I was reading your book was um, I actually had to leave New York when I was 15. My family moved to Virginia. No way. um, And yours moved to Connecticut just like when you were 13. And it seems like we both went through some similar things there. Like, get us the fuck out of here. Oh, my God. Wow. But like Virginia is even farther away and even like more different than Connecticut is from New York. Right. At least you could bop over there on the weekends and stuff. Exactly. (laughs) Or on a Wednesday night (laughs) at 2 a.m. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's brutal. But 
something something else though that I would love for you to discuss a little if you can is that part of your glow up involved using your settlement money from a new an NYPD assault to launch your business. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that incident and how it impacted the whole rest of your life? Yes. Um, this is one of those like watershed. This is like one of those moments where you have no idea. Like, okay. So basically I think I was maybe 20 or 19. It was in 2002. I'm, I think, um, yes, it was after nine 11. So it was 2002. It was 4th of July. And I was at the Hammerstein ballroom for like electronic music. I'm not even going to call it a rave. It was kind of a rave, but whatever. <laughs> and I, and I was, um, you know, kind of minding my business and, and everyone had been let out of the club and there was just like hundreds, like thousands of kids on the street, just like, you know, standing there. It was like 4am, 5am. And there was a lot of cops out, but I was very distracted by the guy that I was with and who I was obsessed with. And I was making out with him on the corner of 34th street and eighth Avenue. And the next thing I know, according to him, one of the cops said, can you move? And he stopped kissing me and said, give me a minute and then started kissing me again. But I don't remember that part. <laughs> I remember just like us making out saying goodbye to each other. And all of a sudden he was being pulled away from me. And I looked and he's like getting beat up by five cops. Shit. And I was like, Really, it happened so quickly, but I had like a half-empty Poland spring bottle in my hand, and I threw it just in the direction, and it hit one of the cops in the back, and I was like, fuck. And the cop turned around and like looked me in the eye. He like knew it was me, obviously, because I was like this girl friend that was like screaming like, ah. And he punched me in the face. He lunged at me and punched me in the face so hard that I did like a 180 and spun around and landed on my face on the subway grades. And my tooth, wow. one of my teeth got broken and, and then like the cop took my hair and like slammed my head into the subway grates and was like, don't fuck with me, you little bitch. Don't fuck with me. When I tell the story, like when I think back, like I've, I've used like irreverence as a way of like protecting like my soul, my spirit from like these things. Obviously that was like a very traumatic thing that happened, you know? Um, yeah. And, but again, my life was so chaotic that it was just another night. Like it really wasn't that big of a deal. Like, of course I got beat up by the cops and I'm sitting in jail right now. You know, like it made sense at the time. And, um, I just remember like sitting in the jail cell being like, Oh my God, I can't believe I'm like locked up on the 4th of July and everybody's out. And like, I want to be like out and fucking partying. And Mm -hmm. I didn't really get out until like two at 1am or something the next day. And, um, I had bruises on my eyes and my, one of my teeth wasn't like half missing. And like when you're, uh, someone had called 911 while I was getting beat up when a 911 call is made about a cop, then the civilian complaint review board gets contacted and they investigate the police. And that's what happened. But I, I like waited like till the last, very last day of like statute of limitations. Like, I think you, you can like sue within a year. It can't be more than that. And it was like the day before. And I was like, okay, I'm going to sue them. Yeah. And then I, I obviously didn't make, didn't get the money for a year or two later. By that time I had already started the brand, but I put it, the money into the brand, which was like $75,000. Whoa. Wow. 
I'm so sorry that that happened to you, but if you're trying to start like a tough girl brand, that's I mean, one way that's kind of it. like a great like story, you know, I mean, yeah. I did make it, I did turn it, I did turn it into a positive thing. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. I, I would love to talk to you about how you became a cast member on the Real Housewives of New York in 2020, long before you were a housewife. At Bust Magazine, we have been aware of your work for years. We have been writing about your label for years. You, you were designing this hip, edgy stuff that we knew our readers were like totally obsessed with. And so when it was announced, I believe it was announced in 2019 that you would be joining the New York cast of Housewives. Mm-hmm. We were like, wait, that Leah McSweeney? <laughs> I know. Like married to the mom, <laughs> Leah McSweeney is going to be on that show? Like it makes... It made perfect sense to me why Bravo would want someone like you, someone who's able to add like a certain downtown cool factor to this franchise that is like very much about like a much more conservative type of woman. But what was it about that opportunity that made you want to say yes? Because I found it so surprising. (laughs) I, I was shocked. Like I was absolutely shocked. Like, I mean, I, I just didn't get it. I was like, how am I going to hang out with Ramona? Like, <laughs> like, like how, what am I going to say to her? Like, what am I going to, like, I don't know. And the thing is I hadn't watched that particular show in years, but I definitely watched it when it first came out, but I had been watching like Beverly Hills and like New Jersey more like recently. But then I started when I knew I was maybe going to be on it. I started watching the current season and I had to turn it off. I would get anxiety. And if I had mm-hmm. smoked, if I smoked weed and watched it, I was like, Oh my God, because I would try to imagine myself in the situation there and I would flip freak out. Cause I'm like, it makes no sense. Like, how do I do that? Like, how am I going to deal? So I'm like, you know what? Let me just not watch it and see if I even get this thing and figure out what I'm going to do. So my facialist that I've been seeing since I'm like, I, she used to work at Christine Chin. Now she has her own, um, she has her own place. She, her name's Ingrid Sung. And I've been seeing her since I was like 19 years old or something. She hit me up one day and was like, Bethany Frankel is a client of mine and wants to know if she could give your name to them because Bethany followed wow. me on Instagram, but I'd never met oh. Bethany. That's how, so Bethany at the end of like the season, like all the women like kind of like give their two cents on what other women should come and join or like give them, you know, give names. And, um, Mine was one of the names and it just, I, I honestly, I remember being like, is this real? This is like the universe or something. Cause it makes no sense. Like it really, <laughs> but then I guess it does make sense. I mean, I definitely kind of like interrupted things, I guess a bit. It was so interesting to see you because like out of all of the housewives, I think that have ever been on that show, you to me are the most relatable. And there's always this sense of like, when, if you're watching the show, wondering like if I, we're suddenly in that friend group. Like, what would I do? And like, how would I act? And all of a sudden, I feel like downtown weirdos like us had like a proxy in there. It was such like a strange, interesting experience, way of experiencing the show that like normally is just sort of like watching aliens from another planet. 100%. I totally get it. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) On April 5th, you're releasing your new book, Chaos Theory, Finding Meaning in the Madness, One Bad Decision at a Time. I have been reading it. I've been enjoying it very much. Your, oh, your writing style is so um, 
it's it's so conversational and interesting. Like it 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 almost feels like someone is talking to you rather than than when you're reading it because it, it flows so naturally. And I'm I I'm just really impressed that Thank it's your you. first book. Thank you so much. Um, in the introduction to the book, you write. When someone first told me about the idea of chaos theory, a mathematical theory stating that within the apparent randomness of chaotic systems, there are underlying patterns that lead to a kind of organization, I thought, holy shit, that's me. <laughs> Listen, I'm not one to espouse mathematical theories, but what I'm learning through trial and error is that doing things your own way is a sort of philosophy. I am my own complex chaotic system with a sense of purpose and order beneath what others perceive as disorder. Maybe you can relate. And I was like, yes, Leah McSweeney, I can relate. Can you talk a little more about this idea of chaos theory that you've built your memoir around and explain how this way of telling your life story might be helpful to other people who might be feeling a little lost during this incredibly fucked up time oh that we're God. all in? Right, right? I know. I mean, I'm, I have to remind myself of chaos theory every day. Like, okay, there is a reason we don't know what it is, but we'll know at some point and it will all make sense. That's just how mm -hmm. I have to go through life or else it doesn't make sense because the human experience is absurd. It's absurd because mm -hmm. we have to deal with dying. We have to deal with our families dying. We have to deal with sickness, you know, and we're like lucky. We're like living in like a, a country. Well, I, I mean, <laughs> I was going to say it's, 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 you know, we are lucky. We are like, we have freedoms that other people don't, you know, um, we have roofs over our head, you know, there's a lot of people that, and, but even people that are privileged have to deal with so much pain, you know? So I think that chaos theory, it's like, you know what? You only live once and go. And if you think you're fucking things up, whatever, it will make sense one day. Like if you feel <laughs> it, you got to go do it. That's how I kind of live my life. Just at, just before you came on, I was talking to Callie about wanting to move in with Callie. Like, I'm not sure why, but I think maybe I should move in with Callie. <laughs> I'm about it. I'm about that life. Yeah. It, we're just going to live that chaos theory and see what happens probably. <laughs> yeah. Live that chaos theory together. It's funny. It's funner when you have someone with you to do it. Right. You know? Mm -hmm. But like also within, you know, in chaos theory, it's like they talk about, you know, the butterfly effect, right? Like the flap of like the butterfly wings, like can change can st start a storm or hurricane or whatever it's like go start a fucking go make a tsunami go do go do that <laughs> like let's go do that <laughs> you know something I found very poignant also before I even got started reading the book is once once I got into the book I saw like what a tumultuous journey that you've had with your mom but the dedication to the book reads to my mother bunny who supported me, challenged me, and loved me through it all. Can you tell me more about your relationship with your mom and why this book is dedicated to her? Okay, first of all, I got to tell you that I don't know what I've been... I think I'm... Um, my daughter turned 14, you know? My daughter is like 14 and a half. So she's the age that... She's now the age that I was when I started going off the rails. And I oh. think it's like kind of subconsciously like fucking with me <laughs> the other night I this strange sensation came over me and I wanted a stuffed animal to cuddle with okay I'm 39 years old I text <laughs> I texted my mother and I said will you please get a stuffed animal for me because I didn't want it for myself I wanted her to get me one 
it's almost like I'm realizing like now that I have this relationship with my daughter, it's not something I got to have with my mother and it's not her fault and it's not my fault. It's just the way things were. Why I ended up being a teenage delinquent, I don't really know. You know, it's nature, it's nurture, it's genetics. It's like a perfect storm, a chaos theory. I mean, it's like, who knows? Like it was the flap of a butterfly's wings and I ended up into a teenage delinquent. But like, you know, I missed out on a lot of years with my mom and having that like relationship that like I have with Kiki. So I'm kind of making up for that time now. Like my mom's coming on my book tour with me. She's coming to oh, LA with oh, me. Wow. <laughs> yeah. She's coming to LA with me. She's coming to DC with me. And, um, you know, my mother is like the, one of the most important people in my life now. I mean, I can't, I, I go to her with everything. I mean, whether it's, I'm overdoing it, maybe we're codependent. I don't know. Um, but now I'm going to have a teddy bear to sleep. <laughs> you know what? Whatever you need to do to, to get by, it's like it's a healthy anxiety or whatever it is. Um, so my mother and I have, yes, had a very tumultuous relationship. And we're in such a better place now. And I actually think that a lot of it had to do with obviously just me maturing, me getting sober, me having my own daughter, us losing my grandmother was a huge one, huge. And also being on the show because it forced me to be accountable for like my behavior Mm. with her. So yeah, she was on the show too. So bunny fans take note that if you want to get your IRL bunny, you're going to have to go to the book tour (laughs) to find her. (laughs) She will be there. (laughs) She does have fans too. (laughs) Totally. It's really cute. Oh my God. (laughs) I'm glad that you brought up getting sober because I did want to ask you a little bit about that. You've been very open on both the show and in your book about the fact that you've had a long journey towards sobriety. You write so poignantly in the book about going to rehab three times by the time you were 18. A lot of people can really relate to that struggle. And I think your candor around the subject has been very helpful in terms of making people feel less alone all over the world who are watching you. At the same time, you were cast on this show that very blatantly encourages its stars to get hammered and get unhinged and fight with each other for ratings and for our personal enjoyment. (laughs) Everyone got to see you acting out under the influence of alcohol on your first season. And on your second season, you were abstaining along with another cast member. And that sobriety was turned into a plot point for everyone to weigh in on. Uh, Can you talk about finding ways to advocate for yourself and make healthy choices when the culture of your workplace is one in which everyone is encouraged to get fucked up all the time? Well, I mean, to be honest, um, I never felt pressured to drink. I, I, and the women on the show, trust me, no, they're happy to have a drink. Nobody's, (laughs) no one's pointing a gun to their head. Okay. Like, let me tell you, like there's, you know, it's not as, I know I've heard of other shows where like, you know, they're like pouring the, but like, do you see who I'm on the show with? Do you think anyone is forcing these ladies to drink? Like they want their, they want their Rose. They want their Tito's like, and if that shit is not out here, they better, they're like yelling, like we need more. So I just needed to clear that up. Um, now last season I wasn't drinking Um, and neither was Luann. So, you know, we were, and also, you know, Sonia, I would watch her drink and be like, I'm happy I'm not drinking because I see how, you know, terribly it's affecting her. 
Ebony is a very controlled social drinker. I don't think she has a problematic relationship with alcohol at all. So that's not toxic for me to be around, you know, like it's nice. Like seeing someone can actually drink normally. That's great. Ramona hits the bottle heavy, but she's (laughs) like also can handle it in a lot of ways that maybe Sonia can't, or I can't, you know? So there's a lot of drinking, but at the end of the day, it's like, there's alcohol everywhere. When I go out to eat, when I go, you know, I, that's my thing. I can't expect the world to change. Like for me, I have to do what I need to do in my own time to stay healthy and to stay alcohol free. And, and like, you know, that's life. Yeah. I mean, that's life and and we do all have to encounter it, but it, we do like it's the, unavoidable. The whole franchise just seems fueled by it in a, in a way that really? not everybody's job does. But think about the other fran. Think about the other shows. There's like not like New York drinks. Like New York drinks, unlike any of the other the franchises. Most. Like you don't right. Yeah. Like you don't really see like Jersey women like they're drinking. But are they like drinking? Drinking? Like you've seen New York like women <laughs> drinking? Like not really. So right. I, I don't know. That's because New York is, is a hard us. place to live. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. It's, str- it's stressful as hell. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I, I loved how in your book, when we were sort of just generally, when you were talking about self-care, you wrote, uh, You've got to hold on to your sanity like it's a billionaire with a nine-inch dick to advocate for yourself, do what needs to be done, and never let go. I mean, I feel like that should just be, like, tattooed on someone's arm. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, because you do. It's like, if you don't advocate for yourself, who will? Like, you know, closed mouths don't get fed. Like, it's just, you know... I think that, I think that especially like women more so than men, maybe we're not as, um, I don't know if it's our like biochemical or just the way we're like raised or whatever, like weird subcon, like, you know, fucking weird subliminal messages we get, but we don't like speak up enough and we don't like say no enough or yes enough. Like when we really truly feel that, like I find myself and I'm like a strong personality, like strong willed person, but sometimes I find myself going along with things. I'm like, why the fuck am I doing that? I don't want to do that. No, I'm not going to this thing. I'm not doing that. I don't want to hang out with that person or I don't want to say yes to this or, you know, I should have said no to this, you know? So, um, I think I'm, I'm trying to be more aware of that actually. So I appreciated it. I jotted it down as something to remember. (laughs) Something else that I found so fascinating about your recent story arc on Real Housewives was when you revealed your decision to convert to Judaism. This is, I I was born Jewish. I find myself, like I had to go to Hebrew school for like a million hours a day. I felt myself rebelling against all the restrictive rules and customs that I was told I had to follow in Hebrew school so hard. I was like, get me the fuck out of here. So I find it so interesting that a free spirit like you would be attracted to these ancient traditions. Why do you want to be Jewish? And where are you on that journey? (laughs) Well, I'm happy to inform you that tomorrow morning is my mikvah. (gasps) Look at yep. you. So to, get once ready. I'm done with, when I'm done with this, I have to go get my nails taken off. 
you know, because mm-hmm. you have to go mm-hmm. in as you were born. I have to, like, I have these as pierc- you were born. Exactly. I have these piercings up here that I haven't taken out since I got them. So I need to figure out. So I don't know if I can unscrew them. I might have to go to the earring place. I don't know. I have a lot of stuff to do before my 9 a.m. mikvah tomorrow. Um, <laughs> wow. You know what? It's not that I'm, and look, every religion, right, has has its, like, restraints and rules. And, and I don't know. It's not necessarily, like, that part that I was attracted to I'm actually attracted to the fact that I can still question things and I'm encouraged to question and Judaism even the word Israel means to wrestle with like so I'm attracted to that and you know this has kind of been an ongoing even as like a little girl in Catholic school I never felt like I was I always felt like I was praying to God like I never had an issue with that but I just never really felt like I was praying to Jesus. I never felt like a close relationship with Jesus. It was God. And that was just the beginning of it. And that I I see in hindsight, there, there's so many, you know, other points in my life, like pivotal moments. Like when I was working with these, um, two brothers with my, my brand, these two Jewish brothers, uh, who always had rabbis up in the office in the garment district. And I would talk to the rabbis every time. And I was so intrigued by, by the customs, by the traditions, by the holidays, you know, and learning about all of them. Um, and there were different moments where I was like, I think I want to convert. I feel Jewish. I think I'm Jewish. I don't know. Like, I think I am, you know, I'm, I'm like neurotic and (laughs) you know, all of those things. So, um, no, I'm just kidding. But, um, and then, no, that's, that's real. it's real. It's so real. Um, but and it's funny because one of my rabbis is like, I want you to learn with the Syrian girl because the Syrian Jews aren't as neurotic as the Ashkenazi Jews. So that's uh, true. Also, yeah. 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 So, um, and then in February of 2020, right before the pandemic, I was at a dinner party. I had two friends there that that were Jewish, and I said to both of them, "I'm do I'm I'm doing this. I'm actually going to convert." And they gave me the name of rabbis, and I started my process. So it's pretty much two years later. Wow. I noticed when I was reading your book that every time you said God, you did G dash D. And I was like, I see you girl. I see you. And the craziest thing is I've been doing that for like 12 years or something. It's something I picked up on that a friend, my best, one of my best friends did. And then I was like, I love that. Like things just make a lot of sense to me. Like Hmm. that, that, that that are not Catholic for me. Maybe subconsciously I'm rebelling. Um, It's on the Upper West Side. We had to go on a field trip to a mikvah when I was like, when I was 13 in Hebrew school. And I think it was in Midwood. It was somewhere in Brooklyn. Okay. And like, I was, I, even though I was like, oh, fuck you, Hebrew school. I remember enjoying the mikvah because like, it was sort of titillating because like in explaining the mikvah to, you know, obviously they only took the girls, but like explaining that, like you soak in the, in the tub and you're as God made you and you don't have any of your things. But Mm -hmm. then all of your fancy things are in the other room and you and your best friends all get totally dolled up and ready to fuck and I was like ah, <laughs> getting dolled up with your like soaking in a jacuzzi and then getting dolled up with your friends and ready to fuck sounds exciting right? but I never actually I never did it I never did it so you're gonna do it for all of us yep, for all I of am. us Jews who never got that far well I mean you have to be you have to be really religious to do it and I'm not so religious that I need to take a ritual bath like at a certain time of my moon times and right. then get ready it's, to have like 
required sex. Yeah, it's like my married, married women, partner. basically. It's it's if you're converting, you get, get your mikvah, and also if you're married, like uh, after your period or right after you have your period, then you go mm-hmm. in and you're ready to mikvah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, like Leah would be going because she's converting, but yeah. if I were to go because I was born in the tribe, I would just go if I was married after my period, yep. like a certain time, you take the ritual bath and then you're required to fuck. And oh. so you get like all all glamorized oh. after the bath. That reminds it. me, another moment of me being like, wow, this is like, I love Jews. I love Judaism, was reading, <laughs> was reading the Red Tent. I read the red tent oh. when I was like 18 years old and my name's Leah, mm-hmm. Leah, whatever, you know, it's just, which yeah. is why you, I read you it. You don't have to change that. I don't. My <laughs> Hebrew name is Leah. So it's perfect. <laughs> Emily is not a great name to Hebrew eyes. They like, I was never given a Hebrew name by my family. So when I went to Hebrew, they just started calling me Amalia, which is not a Hebrew name at all. <laughs> they just like sound made Hebrew. it sound, they just <laughs> thought it maybe sounded Hebrew. Mrs. Gold dubbed me Amalia. And I'm like, that's not Amalia. Some other, I know it doesn't make any sense. It sounds Italian. (laughs) It sounds like the Himalayas. It sounds like, like a mountain range in India. (laughs) That's kind of (laughs) cool. Whatever Jews, whatever. Okay. So uh, according to the gossip sites, Ramona Singer and Luann Deleseps are the only women from Real Housewives of New York season 13 who are returning for season 14. Can you confirm or deny? Uh, I don't think that's true. Just because, like, you can't... I don't think they've made decisions yet. Have you made a decision that you can confirm or deny? I can't confirm or deny. You can't. Mm-mm. All right. I'm reading your body language and I'm feeling like you're not coming back, but you can't say. So I'm just saying that for you. What's my it? interpretation my of your body language? I don't know. What was I doing? I thought your, I was just... Your body language is conveying relief. And that's what... <laughs> and that's what I'm sensing. You're so funny. Oh my God. I'm very intuitive. You don't have to confirm or deny. I see it. But let we we can talk about your last season, which is possibly your last season. The last season was a very divisive one, especially regarding the introduction of Ebony K. Williams, who starred as the very first black cast member in the show's history, which is mind-blowing that it is a show about New York and they never had a black cast member until season 13. That's crazy. But I saw Ebony criticized online quite a lot for discussing race on this supposedly fun and lighthearted reality show that's just about like women drinking. But I don't know what the producers expected by introducing a woman of color for the first time into a room full of white women, 13 seasons into a show about female friendship. Yeah. In this milieu, you often came across to me in that season as someone who could see the microaggressions that Ebony was responding to so often. Who is that? Who's, who's oh, barking? That's, sorry, that's Ruby. Ruby, oh, calm Ruby. down. Hi, Ruby. Calm down, Ruby. What's up, little puppy? Yeah. Are you a good girl? Oh. <gasps> Hi, little girl. Oh, my God, look at that face. Hi, Ruby. So tiny. You know what? I'll say this about last season. Yeah. I think that, obviously, it was... First of all, 2020, like winter, fall, winter, like 2020 was 
the were one of the worst fall winters of my life. Not only was my did my grandmother, who was my everything, die. I was dealing with a total mental health crisis, like that. I'm not going to say crisis, but I was dealing with mental health issues that I wasn't like even aware of. Like I was like, I felt terrible, but like, I also was so busy filming that I didn't even, I, I even, I even switched and started taking Wellbutrin, but like didn't talk about it on the show or it wasn't a storyline. I was just dealing with that. And, you know, I think we all tried our best. It might not have seemed that way. And people didn't like the season. We all tried our best from Ebony to Ramona, to me, to Sonia, to Luann. We did what we could under some really tough circumstances. And I'm not talking about talking about race. Those aren't tough, tough circumstances. I'm talking about not having restaurants to go to, not having, and not having the city open, you know, which would have alleviated. Having your noses swab. Yeah. Having your noses swab constantly. But that would have maybe alleviated some of the pressure that was maybe on Ebony or, and on us, you know? So uh-huh. it just, it just is what it is. You know, it was, it's in the past uh-huh. now. We can only learn yeah, I just, and, and move on. There was, you know, a lot of like, it, it seemed like a lot of misunderstandings around race, but there also seemed to be like a very pronounced intergenerational divide just when it came to like talking about things. Yeah, um, for is sure. Is that how you experienced it? Absolutely. Like, absolutely. And that's real. I mean, that's why it's like, it's hard for like, people like us to talk about shit with our parents sometimes because you know you have to remember Ramona is 63 years old like she's it she doesn't, doesn't look it, it, doesn't, it doesn't, she, she doesn't look it you know it doesn't excuse things that she says or does but when it comes to discussing things or whatever yeah there's a but it's and it's not just race it's sex you know there's like a lot of things that it's just different different generations mm-hmm. like you, you you put it perfectly I, I want to ask you about Wellbutrin for a second because I just got off of it. Are you still on it? No. You know what? I used to be on it years and years ago. And um, so and I had been on Lexapro and I just needed something else. Like I was, I mean, I was like really battling like bad depression and anxiety the entire season, like horrible and grieving my grandmother, which I didn't even get to do. And it finally hit me a few months ago, but like, mm-hmm. um, the Wellbutrin, I, I, I try, I like was on it for a while. I think it's a good drug. It worked. I mean, people love it, you know, but for me, it was giving me more anxiety. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It made me quite crazy. Yeah. I was just, I that. was just curious. Yeah. <laughs> well, some people call it Hellbutrin. Hellbutrin. Yeah. Hellbutrin. Yeah. I mean, I've never been on speed before, but I feel like I know what it would be like now. It's, yeah. It's similar. Mm-hmm. So in 2018, if I could take us in the Wayback Machine for a moment, you wrote an article for Penthouse called Can We Talk About Toxic Femininity? And in this article, you criticized Rose McGowan and Asia Argento for co-opting the Me Too movement for their own personal gain. In that piece, you wrote that Argento and McGowan were examples. They They were a display of chronic predatory narcissism. Uh, is what you wrote. And you argued that it was harmful for Argento to accuse Harvey Weinstein of rape because she had been in a consensual relationship with him. You wrote, calling this rape is doing our society, including sexual assault survivors, a disservice on so many levels. 
I was raped when I was 15 years old. I know a lot of women will accuse me of victim blaming, but at some point we have to remove the impenetrable shield that one receives when she is considered a victim. It was a controversial thing to write and to say. You got a lot of backlash for that piece, and some people actually cited this article while protesting your inclusion on season 12 of Real Housewives. Four years have passed since you wrote it. Do you feel any differently looking back on the issue, or would you have expressed yourself any differently had you known that there would be so much backlash against it? I mean, not really, because Asia Argento was then... You know, there was an article about her in the New York Times a couple weeks later that she actually, actually raped this kid um, who she knew since he was like five years old and was paying him off. But at the same time, putting her fists in the air, acting like she was, you know, the spokesperson for me, too. And I think the issue is like, first of all, Tarana Burke started that movement. When you try to become the face of a movement, you're going to fuck the whole movement up. Because no one's perfect. As we see, there is no perfect victim. Now, whether Asia Argento was actually raped by Harvey Weinstein, is it possible that someone's raped by someone that they're in a consensual relationship with? Absolutely. My point is I don't believe her because I think she's a liar. And I think she would do and I and I think she would do anything. But seriously, because how could somebody who had their own their own sexual misconduct case that they're paying someone off can like actually stand in front of cameras and stand in front of all these people and act like they are perfect and they are innocent and they are like the martyr. So I don't trust her, you know, like I just felt like something was really like off about her. And then I was proved to be right a few weeks later and it just continued to get worse and worse. Then she blamed Anthony Bourdain who was dead. She blamed him for the whole thing. Do you not remember that? She made no, me. I do remember. She made me too look like a complete joke. I was just way early on it, so I don't know what I would really change about it. I mean, I don't like to, you know, maybe would I word things differently? Like I don't know. Maybe it would have wouldn't have mattered. People still would have been angry about it because you really weren't allowed to critique anything back then. I think it's mm-hmm. becoming a little more. People are able to have more nuanced conversations now, but I think she did a lot of harm to the Me Too movement. I, I still think. I still think that the movement was able to help things and our society in a lot of ways, but she made a mockery out of it without a doubt. I was thinking of it also in the context of the fact that you've been um, sort of steeped in the 12 step tradition for quite a while. And there's, you know, this concept that, um, that you place in that world, you place principles before personalities. And it seems like Mm. um, when it comes to the Me Too movement, that personalities in some ways hijacked the principle and that it seems almost sort of natural that someone with your background would pick up on that, would pick up on how people might discount an entire like uh, movement towards healing because they could identify this personality or that personality that was associated with it that they found problematic. That's why nobody should be the face of movements <laughs> like that. I would like to know, <laughs> Leah McSweeney, are you a feminist. I'm absolutely a feminist. I'm never giving that up. I'm never giving that word up. I love it. 
I'm all about my femininity. I'm all about my girl power. I'm all about me. I'm all about fucking being a feminist. Fuck it. Yeah, I am. I'm not giving that word up no matter what. You don't have to. Nobody's going to no, make No, because, right? Because it's also, like, it means something different for everybody. Like, some people think that, like, you know, some feminists think that uh, some people are pro-sex workers, right? Some people are, like, trying to, like, shut it down, and they think that's feminism. I mean, everybody has their own different, like, set of beliefs and values, and I think we can all call ourselves feminists if we want to, even if we don't agree on everything. Tell me your definition of feminism. Let me think. I think I would say feminism, my definition of feminism is, is like, it's, it's all encompassing. It's for everybody. It can be, and it can mean whatever, there is no definition for it because it's like, it's different for every single person. You know, men can be feminists. I mean, you, anyone can be a feminist, Mm -hmm. but for me, but for me personally, I think my feminism is like deeply rooted in like my relationship to myself. Like, I don't know, like me giving birth and like my relationship with my daughter, like that was like a, such a unique experience, you know? And I, and I kind of line it up with my feminism. So I don't know interesting question I'm kind of just like openly answering it and like figuring it out but yeah I think we're all figuring it out we are all figuring it out (laughs) this is my final question and it is the final question that we ask all of our guests on pop tarts and that question is what you watching? When I say what you watching, it is a broad pop cultural question. We're talking about movies, television, books, music, music videos, podcasts, anything that you are consuming pop culturally, we want to know about it because it is probably very, very cool. Leah McSweeney, what you watching? I finished Yellow Jackets like all of us, but I was absolutely obsessed. Um, I just watched Bad Vegan. I started watching Deep Water <laughs> with Ben Affleck and the really <laughs> super hot chick who he was like dating and now he's not dating and I can't remember her name, but I'm going to finish watching that. Um, I'm reading a book called Lucky. I'm also watching um, The Bachelor, which is now, I guess, over. Um, I just, I just, can, I just can finished. You tell me, can you tell me your thoughts on this season real quick? I just finished it also. I hate men. Um, <laughs> totally. <laughs> that was such a crash. <laughs> like I honestly was like crying, like for these girls. Like literally, me and my daughter were watching. I'm like, she's like, why is he doing that? I was like, because he's a dude. Like he's a dude, <laughs> and of course he wants like these poor girls after they slept with him, and then he goes the, to the girl who like didn't put out and like ran away from him. I'm like, of course. Oh my God. I can't, I just can't with either of them. Like I, I just, I can't. Yeah. (laughs) I've never been so emotional watching something. It's just, uh, we need a bachelor in paradise coming out soon. Yeah. but, But now those two girls, what are their names again? I'm Gabby and, um, Gabby and Rachel, Gabby and Rachel, Gabby and Rachel are going to be the bachelorettes. Together, friendship style. I'm so excited. I love The Bachelor. I just started watching it like this year. So it's the guiltiest of pleasures. 
it doesn't get much guiltier. Thank you so much for coming on our show. We appreciate talking to you so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Thank I really you. appreciate this it. This was awesome. Callie, we're going to take the briefest of breaks, and then you and I are going to come back, and I'm going to ask Callie. And Callie, hopefully you're going to ask me, what you watching? What you watching? Before we get back to the show... I want to tell you about our new sponsor, Wolfie Vibes Publicity. If you're working on a new project and find yourself in need of a kick-ass publicist who communicates well and works tirelessly to get you the coverage you're after, consider going to Wolfie Vibes Publicity. Wolfie Vibes Publicity is a female-owned and operated boutique PR firm that will get you where you need to be, and you'll even have fun in the process. Get in touch via wolfievibespublicity.com for details and quotes and tell them that Pop-Tart sent you. Essentially, I started it because every female comedian I know was amazing and hardworking and hilarious and I knew would make great podcasts and every male comedian I know already had a podcast and was doing their own thing. (laughs) Hi, I'm Kate Moldenhauer, the founder of More Banana Podcasts, a comedy podcast network entirely produced, hosted and led by women. We have shows about politics. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Get Civical. When the Supreme Court puts stuff on their calendar, they use the word docket. So their Google calendar is a docket. Is a docket. So technically, I have a docket. You have a docket. We all have docket. We all have a docket. Sex. Welcome to my vagina. I'm Jesse Karen. This is Rebecca Frank. What were ancient Greek dildos made of, Jesse? They were made of padded leather and, yep, anointed with olive oil. Yep. (laughs) Scams. I'm Caitlin Bradley Smith. <laughs> and, and we, we love, love scams. scams. She tells them she's a German Russian heiress and she seems like she has a lot of money and people buy it. That's yeah. basically what's happening. So as soon as she got a loan, she would cash it as much as she could out before anybody caught on. Which amazing. Was so smart. I mean, so like, smart. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible, but like to take that money out immediately. Because women are actually pretty versatile and funny. More Banana is a network of women's voices, unfiltered and uninterrupted. Find us everywhere you get your podcasts and learn about our growing roster of shows at morebanana.com. Hey, Pop-Tart listeners. Have you been trying to record your own podcast, but you keep getting bogged down by technical problems? Luscious Logan can take the raw recordings of your show, edit and produce them to give them that rich, full body sound that you hear right now. If you have a deep need to express yourself and sound good in the process, reach Luscious Logan. LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. That's LusciousLogan13 at gmail.com. If you want to have that luscious sound. We're back. Hello, Hello, Callie. Hey. We we talked to Leah McSweeney, and she's pretty fucking cool. She really is, like, the coolest out of all of those ladies. I know. She makes it way yeah. more relatable. Agreed. And now is the time in the program when I ask you, and hopefully, Callie, you will ask me, what you watching? Ah, well, obviously, the Oscars just happened. 
<laughs> Boy, did they ever. <laughs> Boy, did they ever. You know, everybody's talking about the slap heard around the world. But to me, okay, so I had a little adventure trying to watch the Oscars. Um, I tried to watch it on Hulu, but I guess you, it was only Hulu Plus, and they just put, like, a teaser up. And so I was watching mm. that, and then I was, I was packing stuff in my room, and I was like, wait, didn't I already hear this? And then I was like, I've this, all the same thing. This is just on repeat. So I don't know what I was watching there. And so then I went to YouTube, because I don't have ABC. And I went to YouTube Live, and I found a live clip on Now This Is News, and it was... Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis, and they were doing the posing, and they kept whispering to each other. It was really cute. And then they walked off, and then a bunch of dudes carried on a table full of food, like a whole elaborate display. I guess probably what people are going to be eating at the after party. I don't know. And they posed like hard style with it, you know, like kneeled down and held each other's hand. And I tried to get a picture of the hard style, but I missed it. But I still got a picture of the food on the red carpet. And then the red carpet, the, the table walked the red carpet. I don't know what the fuck that was. And nobody else seems so weird. It. Nobody knows what the fuck I'm talking about. If you hadn't sent me a photo that you took of your TV, I would think that you were hallucinating. <laughs> I know. Thank God I had the wherewithal to take a photo because I was like, what is happening? And then I called you and I was like, why is there a table on the red carpet? You had no idea what the fuck I was talking about. Yeah, we were not watching the same thing. How was your Oscars experience? It was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I, I watched with my ladies and it was fun. Oh, happy birthday. Thanks. How Thanks. was all that? My it was fine. It was fine. Thank you for asking. I, I just did the, the girl tour and tried to see as many of my friends as possible within a week. And now I'm like ready to sleep for a week. <laughs> <laughs> I feel that. Um, one, a quick shout out is I saw Big Frida was in the credits of one of the Sex and the Cities reboot episodes. And she was also in, in an episode of... Um, uh, Abbott Elementary. They used her song, huh. Marie Antoinette. She's getting out there all over the place. I hope she's getting big money. Mm-hmm. Abbott Elementary is really cute. I don't have much to say. I saw the first episode, and I haven't seen more yet, but I'll probably get around to it. It's it's, it's a relaxed, lighthearted thing. Um, and some of it's really funny. Then I've also been watching Minks on HBO about the mm. porn magazine. So much dick, you know, I fucking love that. Bless all the various dicks. It's so much dicks. <laughs> and, um, um, As a feminist pornographer yourself, I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering, how does it capture the vibe? Oh, my God. It, it's giving me so much throwbacks. Um, first, I would like to say that after I first saw it, I was like, I came for the feminism and I stayed for the dicks. But they do a lot of the things that we did, you know, like we would have guys come in and we would all be lined up and they would take their clothes off and show us their dicks. <laughs> <laughs> you know. got to know what you're hiring. Right? And then we would take photos and then we would like put them on the wall and see which one worked with our vibe or our theme. Um, they did a game called, it was match the dick to the guy. And we totally had a game that was like match the hard dick to the soft dick, which was really, really hard to play. And then <laughs> in one episode, they do this thing. With, so the first cover dude is like, he's a fireman. And... They end up doing like 
a reverse thing where the girls are catcalling the guy. And it was totally like heckle parade where me and the ladies would dress up as construction workers and go and heckle guys on the street, which, you know, is not, <laughs> not um, me too appropriate. <laughs> not fly today. Uh, well, it was genius at the time, you know, we thought. Yeah. Um, if they do a mid-coitus interview, you know that they have a copy of, of the Candy Rain over there because I'm pretty sure I made that concept up where I would interview someone while having sex with them. I have never heard of anyone doing a mid-coitus interview other than you. If they put it in, then we'll know where they're getting all their, their ideas from. Um, and, it, you know, unfortunately in this one, as in with most magazines, this one's published by a guy. So it's like she wanted to start a feminist magazine. No one will give her money. Um, she meets this porn publisher, and then he wants to back it, but only if she makes it um, feminist porn. Mm-hmm. So that's like the whole concept. But, uh, you know, we did our whole thing just with the ladies, just like how we do bust. There was no man behind us except our that's lawyer, right. Bernie. <laughs> <laughs> You needed a whole weekend. Yeah. Um, anyway, I really like it. I'm here for it. And, you know, I'm always down to watch anything about making a magazine, and making a feminist magazine, and making a porn magazine. It hits me in my feels. I love it. Great. And the last thing I've been watching is this show, is this cake on Netflix with Mikey Day. Oh. <laughs> I've heard of the show and I've seen things from it and I find it disturbing. Do go on. Well, I really like it. The cakes apparently really taste good, though I'm not a fan of fondant, but it's the part in the inside that they're eating that's the good part, you know, the cakey cake part. Um, but so it's the competitors, they, there's items and they have to guess which ones are and are not cake. And then the ones that win go on and make a cake to look like these other to look like something, and then there's decoys, and then they have guest judges that guess if it's a cake or not. Um, there's, like, buckets of sand. There's, like, uh, it's just crazy shit. Tacos made of cake. Um, oh, God, so much weird purses, she shells, shoes, bags of money. <laughs> it's all <there. laughs> It's and the, the the cakes are so fucking impressive, and everybody's really nice to each other. Though at the first episode, at the very first episode, this guy was like, "I'm gonna go ahead and cheat and put these cake tomatoes on this other real taco to try to throw the judges." And they never he won, and they never mentioned that again. <laughs> oh, <laughs> floated putting real on top of fake cake. Huh? But I guess the whole thing is about deceiving judges, so maybe they don't care if you cheat. Mm-hmm. Maybe <laughs> Mikey Day is. A I really saw like a very disturbing cake that looked like the lady who who made its head, and so she looked like she was eating her own head, and it was disturbing. I don't know if that's maybe I didn't pay attention to that part. I was no, 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 it's not from the show. It's just like in the the wide world of is it oh, cake TikTok. I was like, I do not remember. That. <laughs> uh, well, one of the dudes does horror cakes professionally as his job, and he does like human hearts and weird shit like that. Um, but Mikey Day is really, really funny as the judge. He's like, um, makes a lot of machete knife jokes because he has to cut into all this stuff with a knife. He's very over the top. I like it. I'm here for it. 
And I'm not really a food competition person. And what are you watching? Thank you so much for asking. I, you know, wrapped up my Oscars preparedness tour uh, in preparation for the for the Academy Awards, I went and finally, for the first time since before COVID, went to a, an actual movie theater to see a film. I saw The Lost Daughter at the Paris Theater, which is a beautiful old theater here in New York City, because uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal, who uh, wrote and directed The Lost Daughter, was there doing a Q&A. So I was excited exciting. to see her there. Yeah, The Lost Daughter um, is an adaptation that Maggie Gyllenhaal did of a novel by Elena Ferrante, um, who is a fave of our former online editor, Erica W. Smith. She turned me on to Ferrante, and and then apparently Maggie Gyllenhaal is also a fan because she made it into an incredible movie that I just was blown away by. It stars uh, Olivia Coleman, who's amazing in everything, and Dakota Johnson and Jesse Buckley, and... um, it's it's about a, a woman of a certain age who goes to on like a seaside holiday and she uh, makes friends with like a young mother and it brings up all of these memories for her of when she was a young mother and what she went through. And I, I don't to say more would kind of spoil it, but it's it's very psychologically intense and mm-hmm. you don't see and very overtly feminist and. Um, there's just a lot of subtlety to it. And I think maybe that's why it didn't win all the awards, but it was nominated for uh, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress, and Best Adapted Screenplay. And um, it definitely deserved all of those nominations. And I feel like maybe its subtlety is the reason that it that it didn't win, but like it definitely deserved all the praise that it got. It was so good. Was it Maggie and, um, that was wearing the dress that had all the knobs coming out of it? I didn't see her dress. I missed Hall's dress. Somebody was wearing I will tell you that um, Peter Sarsgaard is also in the movie, and he's married to Maggie Hall. And I didn't realize until this movie how incredibly scorching hot he Peter Sarsgaard is. Hot. So Peter now I have Porch like hot. a huge <laughs> Sars boner. <laughs> For Sarsgaard because of The Lost Daughter. Oh. Um, I, I don't think I've seen many, many of the movies that got nominated at all. Uh-huh. I saw Don't Look Up on Netflix. Oh, That's I the, that. the apocalyptic black comedy that um, is starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah, that was good. Timothée Chalamet. Oh, Timothée. <laughs> <And laughs> And Kate Blanchett and Meryl Streep, who are just astonishing. <laughs> they were so funny. Both of them were so funny. Um, it's just, it's a black comedy that's really too uncomfortably close to what would probably happen if a meteor was threatening to hit the earth. Like, everybody is just a, a media whore yeah. and an anti-intellectual nightmare. <laughs> yeah, like when they're on the news show and they're like, Keep it light. Keep it fun. Yeah, keep it light. <laughs> when oh, yeah. I, I read a um, really good um, McSweeney's article that was like I forget the title, but it was a it was like I am Timothée Chalamet's bare chest, and I'm mad <laughs> that my uh, 
he, he, the whole thing was supposed to be about how he was mad that he was supposed to be make, having his moment with his bare chest, but all the attention went to the slap. And yeah, he was like, "Poor Timothy." People should have been talking about my shirtless lace jacket, but nobody cares. And it's true; <laughs> nobody's talking about the fashion this year. <laughs> the The last thing I saw was the eyes of Tammy Faye on Hulu, in which Jessica Chastain plays the late great. Tammy Faye Baker Messner. Um, I thought that she was absolutely incredible. I'm a huge Tammy Faye fan, have been for a long time. And, you know, she's a lot more than just crazy makeup. Like her speaking voice was totally original and distinctive. So was her singing voice. So was her, were her many mannerisms and Jessica Chastain just totally nailed it and played her through a variety of looks and, and eras. Her acceptance of uh, queer people in the church. Right. She was a total revolutionary in the fact that she embraced uh, uh, gay Christians and gay non-Christians. She embraced AIDS patients at a time when all evangelicals were saying that it was God's punishment. She and Jim J. Bullock, who was a uh, a famously gay TV personality had a TV show together so she could like, you know, she just was a a gay icon in the Christian community when there were no other gay icons in the Christian community. And I feel happy that she got such a, she was great and playing her throughout the, she was so great. Like, you know, she did a great job through each like section of Tammy's life. And Jessica Chastain won the Academy Award for Best Actress for playing her. And they're also the makeup and hairstyling team won also, which they definitely should have because that was a big fucking job. Um, I was happy that they won. And I think a lot of people weren't expecting it because it was sort of an under-the-radar movie. Um, but it was so good. I don't even think uh, I've so seen a full happy list won. of who won because I couldn't watch it. And now everything about it is just... Oh, about Will Smith and Chris Rock. So I haven't even seen a proper list. I need to look that up. I do know that Quest Love won, and that documentary was amazing. I loved that movie. Yeah. What was it called? Summer of Soul, Soul, if you haven't seen it. It It's epic. And the last thing that I've been watching is the Majestic Pop-Tarts Patreon page. We really need your help to keep Bust alive, and hopefully you'll be excited by the goodies we've hooked up for Pop-Tarts listeners at patreon.com slash Podcast. Callie and I, with help from Team Bust, have been typing up show notes exclusively for Patreon donors that include links to what everyone has been watching for all 125 episodes. We've got totally ad-free episodes available. There's exclusive content on there, including our amazing episode with Big Frida and more. Please check it out at patreon.com slash Podcast. And finally, I would like to thank our luscious producer and sound engineer, Logan Del Fuego. Muy caliente, Logan. And our girl gang at Bust Magazine. You can find me on Twitter at Emily Rems and on Instagram at Rems Emily. But you can't find Callie on socials, so don't try, right? Nope. 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 Fuck that. <laughs> you can email both of us though. I'm at emilyrems at bust.com. Callie W at bust.com. And you can learn more about this show at bust.com slash pop And finally, 
please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us get the word out, and we super duper appreciate it. Until next time. Mm-hmm. Ah. Ah. <laughs> that was a weird one. <laughs> sticky a bit. <laughs> yeah, sticky. <laughs>